According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1 once again. Join me in Philippians chapter 1. Picking up where we left off on Sunday morning. The final paragraph in chapter 1, getting ready to cross over into chapter 2. But tying together these details about living as Christ, dying as gaining, and uh, the exhortation that Paul uh, expresses to the Philippian believers that they can have the same attitude he has, and they should have the same attitude he has. And uh, so he says in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's all. Just do that. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's, uh, that's the main imperative of the, of the uh, exhortation there. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to hedge us about and protect us, and to bless our time in His Word tonight. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this evening, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your grace. Father, recognizing that we have no right in and of ourselves to be here. Uh, who are we, Father, that we should even gain your attention? Why are you, why are you even listen to us, Father? And yet, by your grace, we are in your Son. And Father, you love your Son. And the fellowship between the Father and the Son is, is what we have in Christ. And I thank you for that. So Father, tonight as we study to show ourselves approved, we call upon your faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we can take a few questions as we get started this evening. Anna has the first question. Were you raising your hand? Oh, okay. You were waving at George Ann. Oh. All right. Microphone's ready to go. Who would like to have our lead-off question? We'll give Chuck our lead-off question here tonight. Front row. Front row. There you are. So I'd like to ask the same question I asked this morning oh, okay. after church. The one about if in Adam all sin, then how can people in the thousand generations period be born and not sin? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we have, we have uh, a passage, and this is what we do anytime you have to reconcile separate passages, because you have a verse that says this, you have a verse that says that. So you say, all right, uh, they're both true, because God's not a liar, every passage is true, how do we synthesize them? How do we harmonize them? So uh, as in Adam all die in Christ, all are made alive, okay? And so that we have the positional truth promises there. Yes, every Adamic human is spiritually dead. Every Adamic human is a sinner, is spiritually dead, needs to be saved. Uh, that's, that's true. And that's, as, that's effective immediately. That's true as of now. It was written in the church age. It's applicable today. It's been applicable ever since Adam. All right? But then we have a passage in Revelation 21. We're told there's no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The first things have passed away. So uh, that also is true, or it will be true when we get there. And so then... Um, do, how do we reconcile those if, in fact, 
there is human procreation for a thousand generations, which I believe there are. Because that, again, is another passage that we're harmonizing, we're synthesizing. And so we go to Deuteronomy, or we go to Psalms, or we go to Chronicles, or we go to all the places where a thousand generations are spoken of, and we realize there's going to be a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And now is that going to be in the church age? Is that going to be uh, in the millennium? Well, the millennium's only a thousand years long. That's not time to have a thousand generations. So the only, the only place, and we've only had I mean, there's 60 generations from Adam to Jesus. And so, you know, we haven't, it hasn't been time presently from Adam to today to have a thousand generations. So um, anyway, so the conclusion is, my conclusion is that, that for, for those promises to be fulfilled, it has to happen in the new heavens and on the new earth. And so with, with generations being born at a time when there is no more sin, no more death, then what we end up with is a conclusion that they are born... And, and they're not—they're born sinless. They're born without sin. They're born in, in a way that uh, Cain and Abel would have been born had Adam and Eve procreated before the fall instead of after the fall. And so, uh, for the thousand generations, they're all born without sin. They're all born in in that sinless, uh, original Adamic uh, uh, condition, not the present Adamic condition, but the pre-fall Adamic condition. So, does that make sense? Yeah, but that means that. Since Jesus Christ died for everybody, he died for them, but it was re- it's really unnecessary because they don't sin, right? He, um, he died to redeem all of Adamic humanity, correct? But none of us were saved because, because of this. None of us were condemned because of the sins we had done. And so I don't view that as being an issue. I'll have to think about that, though, because that may come up in March. The fact that, well, because if you think about it, was, was Adam... When he was first created, when dust was put together in a body and God breathed into him the breath of lives, he was sinless, he was perfect. Is it fair to say that he was saved? I don't think he wasn't saved because he didn't have anything to be saved from. He was, he was created righteous, he was created sinless, he was created perfect. And so I think it would be something similar for the thousand generations in the sense that they're not redeemed, they're not saved as we define it because they were never fallen to begin with. But they are sinless Adamic progeny, which, by the way, God commanded. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, God was speaking to sinless humanity at that point. And so sinless humanity has never obeyed that command, until, and, but they will in, uh, in the new heavens and on the new earth. Does that answer what you were getting at? Just one more question. Uh-huh. So why shouldn't we be jealous of those stinkers? They're not going to have any problems or any difficulties like we do have. <laughs> Well, you know, just because we're saved doesn't mean we don't have problems. Uh, we're still human, and, and there's going to be... But without sin, without death, the problems will be different, okay? They still will be tested with regard to their faith. It's just going to be tested as yet without sin. Like our Savior was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And so there will still be the opportunities, like elect angels today, there will still be opportunities for the thousand generations of sinless Adamic humanity to, to glorify Jesus Christ. But it's going to be different from you and I. It's going to clearly be different from the church age. And so, yeah, those are things that, that we think about, and the Bible doesn't really explain it. It just talks about a thousand generations in six different places. And, uh, and so we have more than questions than answers, I think, at this point. We are the bride, that's true. Yeah, and I wouldn't trade the bride for the, for the thousand generations. So. All right, other questions tonight? Excellent question, thank you. Other questions tonight? 
Across the aisle? Going once? No? Going twice? Anyone? Okay, easy night then. Thank you, Lewis. Well, Philippians 1, verse 27. And uh, he goes through a, a process here, thinking out loud, which uh, I just laugh at because I do this a lot. I think a lot of us do this a lot. I think we, we talk ourselves into things. We debate the pros and cons. We talk about, well, maybe this, well, maybe that. And so he debates it amongst himself as far as uh, being hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, um, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so he goes back and forth on that. In fact, it even starts even earlier in verse 22. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So there's that, you've got that going for. The longer I stay here, the more fruit I can bear. The more glory for Christ, the more uh, other believers are edified, the more Christ is glorified. And so I don't know what to choose. And so he goes back and forth. Finally, he convinces himself in verse 25. And the verb is patho, which we've studied several times. Patho, persuaded by this convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue. And uh, two compound verbs there of meno. I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And uh, so that's his conclusion. He talks himself into it. That's what he settles on. And you think, okay, end of story. Until you get to verse 27, where again, he still leaves open the possibility that maybe he's not going to come to Philippi after all. See, when he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so even though he settled it in his own mind and was convinced in verse 25, he still leaves it open in verse 27 that that things can change. Things can change before we get there. We might fully intend to do this but then, you know, a shipwreck or a storm and you end up somewhere you didn't think you were going. And other things, other things happen. God, uh, God overrules our circumstances. So we can be thankful for that. All right. And so this is what we're dealing with. Our outline, uh, we're in the midst of point six. Paul issues a powerful exhortation for the Philippians to apply until such time that he can be reunited with them. It's a, in other words, it's an in the meantime kind of uh, message. You know, I'm on my way, I'm convinced I'm going to get there, and until I get there, there's only one thing you've got to do. Only this. Only uh, conduct yourselves, politically live, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's all you've got to do. And when you do that, I'm going to hear good things. <laughs> he says, uh, if, I, if I'm delayed getting there, then I'm going to, I'm going to keep hearing about how um, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He said, I'm, I'm going to hear that before I get there. If, in fact, you are conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. You know, this is basically a, an apostolic prophecy that they're going to have opponents, that they're never going to not have opponents, that that's going to continue. And the more that they walk in the light, the more opponents are going to start lining up in hostility against them. You know, that's, that's, that's just a promise. That's what we could expect. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Or he told Peter, Jesus told Peter, he said, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Okay, and so uh, 
just expect it. That's what happens. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and uh, Philippi needs to uh, get ready to uh, deal with that. It goes on to say in verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So, I mean, they go hand in hand. Are you happy that He uh, that His grace saved you? Great. Finish the verse. His grace also assigned you the suffering that goes with that. It's to suffer for His sake. It's the same grace. The grace of God. When it says uh, granted, it has been granted, that's a grace word, okay? That's a grace word. And so it's been granted. You have by grace been saved. You've also by grace been assigned the suffering of Christ in, uh, that goes with that. So um, we'll, we'll uh, be developing that in verse 29. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And uh, this is what we can, uh, can look at. We see those that went before, we learn from their example, and we get ready for our turn. And when it's our turn, we want to set the best example we can because there's uh, the next generation coming up after us and they're watching us. And uh, they're going to have to follow our example in dealing with things that, uh, that we can't even dream of because evil men and imposters are going from bad to worse. And what our kids are going to deal with and our grandkids are going to deal with is far uh, worse than anything we're seeing here today. Lord willing and, uh, and rapture pending. All right, so uh, we got a few laughs out of the word only uh, because it is a pretty big only. It is, uh, it, oh, is that all? You know, you might imagine they're, they're responding when Paul says, okay, here's the only thing you got to do, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And, okay, oh, is that it? You know, that's all I got to, that's, that's, that's what I got to measure up to. Uh, but Paul has a way of doing that like he did in Galatians 3, 2 where he used the word only and he really packed a lot into just one thing that was really about seven things that he said was only one thing. And something I think similar is happening here because this is a very long run-on sentence and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. But all of it is, is defined by the heading that says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, um, and, and then it's been haunting me ever since teaching it is the polituomai vocabulary here on this. Conduct yourselves. And the idea of how do you behave, uh, different expressions for behavior that uh, we have in the English language, that they have in the Greek language, that uh, there's different ways that you can describe behavior. And this is one that defines behavior, but specifically defines behavior in political terms, defines behavior in civic terms. And, uh, and we don't want to lose that. And I think there's a, there's a, you cannot emphasize this too much because this is exactly where the Philippians themselves were as a Roman colony. This is exactly, their citizenship was everything to them, and that's what set them apart as so superior to Bereans or Thessalonians or Apollonia or Athens or any of these other Greek cities or Macedonian cities that were not Roman. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman city. It happened to be located on uh, Macedonian soil, all right, but it is a uh, it was a Roman colony, and all of its residents, all of its inhabitants, are Romans. Romans by birth, in uh, in the uh, the activity there, and so the verb is polituomai, and uh, you know, and, and so it's kind of it's, it's like you're taking a, a, a noun like polites citizen, and you're making a verb out of it. So how do you make a verb out of citizen? Well, be a citizen, okay. 
do citizen things. Um, function in your citizenship might be a, a way to express it. And so, and that, that's different for different, different uh, civilizations, different nations. You know, our citizenship means as we function in our citizenship that, that we, uh, we have freedom of speech and we vote, we put the sticker on our shirt that, you know, I voted. There's a lot of places in this world when they pursue their citizenship, it doesn't include voting, right? Or if, if, if it is, it's a sham, it's all a rigged thing to, to start with. Um, but what does it mean to be a citizen? And it's different depending on what the, the rights of that citizenship entail. Okay? And so uh, in, in some respects, being a citizen includes the right to, uh, for example, to own real property, that you couldn't own real estate without being a citizen. And that if you were a foreigner, if you were an alien, if you were a sojourner, well then you could rent quarters or you could uh, have temporary living arrangements, but you were not going to own any real property because this is, you know, American soil. This is American property. You're not an American citizen. And so you have political loyalties outside the boundaries of this nation. And, uh, and so you're not going to be permitted ownership of, of a property within, a real property within this nation, see, okay? Now, that's not the case in our country, but that has been the case historically in a lot of places over the years, and probably still, I imagine, is uh, true somewhere today in this world. Um, but think about it, too. Even the, even the fact that we have property rights, that we have First Amendment rights, that we have uh, constitutional pr- uh, protections against uh, unreasonable search and seizure, for example, and that what I own, not only do I own it, but it's a matter of public record because the deed has been filed in a courthouse and that everything is is confirmed and it's the, the laws uh, that protect my private property ownership are the same laws that apply to all the citizens, that apply universally as, as a part of our birthright as Americans. And so uh, all of these things, and that's, that's unusual, okay? Uh, you know, you get to a, a tin pot dictatorship and if he wants to take your land, then, you know, Robert Mugabe can take your land, see? At least up until yesterday, he could take your land. And, and I understand he's out of power now, so that's kind of interesting. Um, anyway, so the verb is polituamai. Live as a citizen. Function in your citizenship. Um, you are a citizen of heaven, we're going to learn about in chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. All right? And so if our citizenship is in heaven, what are we doing here? Well, we're waiting. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we are behind enemy lines, while we are in this world that's no longer our home, uh, live as a citizen of the world we're headed to, not where we are now, okay? And, uh, and represent that kingdom. It's part of our ambassadorial function. If that helps, that might help us to think our way through this, all right? And, I'll, uh, you know, when you're in the military and you get these briefings and they, uh, you know, you're deployed overseas and you're going to go like my first day when we landed in Germany, it was like, well, here's the welcome to Germany. And you get the, uh, you get the speech that says, look, um, you are an American citizen in a foreign country and you have to represent your nation. You want to represent the best of your nation. You want to be set the good example. You don't want to be the, the drunk, obnoxious, angry, stupid American that, that gives bad uh, impressions to other people in other countries. So they give you this big speech about representing 
your nation and, and uh, being an, uh, a, a good witness and testimony. And I thought, wow, this is marvelous. This is just like the Bible teaches about our ambassadorship and being citizens of heaven. So live as citizens. Live as citizens. Conduct your political life. Conduct your public life. And maybe that, that, that might be a way that expresses as well, because we have a personal life, but we also have a political life. Okay? And maybe that might help if, uh, if um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to put into terms maybe. I'm just struggling with it. But uh, the verb is polituomai, which maybe doesn't mean as much to us today, but it meant the world to the Philippians. That uh, based upon the pride and the esteem and the, the, the tremendous value that they had as Roman citizens. So um, let me just read one final thing here. I, I've already read a, a biblical knowledge commentary quote. I already read a uh, from the church fathers there, the uh, epistle to Diognetus. And, and Warren sent out an email, by the way, on that. So um, let me just open up here a French guy that I have started to like more and more. Um, I know, it's kind of it's kind of curious, isn't it? All right. And so with conduct, Paula too am I, and uh, there is a lexicon here. There it is. And this I thought was interesting. Um, so this is the uh, theological lexicon in the New Testament. Uh, speak, S-P-I-C-Q, is the uh, French guy that wrote this. And uh, let me make this larger. Ooh, too large. All right. And so he's covering politeia, polituma, polituamai, and politeis, those four cognate terms um, that, that are all political in their expression. Politeia refers to a constitution or a system of government uh, or a right of citizenship. Polituma is a place of citizenship uh, or an act of administration. Other expressions there. Polituamai is to live, but to live as a citizen. Specifically, it's to live as a citizen. And that's what we have here. Live as a citizen in a manner worthily of the gospel of Christ. That's the prime directive here. So um, the urban or civic metaphors for the Christian life in the New Testament and especially in St. Paul are quite coherent. Heaven is like a city called a polis. Christ is its sovereign, kurios. And it's translated Lord, but it's also the sovereign of a, of a polis. It has its own laws and constitution, that is a politeia, namely the gospel. Christians are its citizens, the politai of this. Uh, and in fact, there's a Christian letter written in the 4th century that says this. We believe that your citizenship is in heaven. Very much agreement with Philippians 3. And so um, are, are not treated as foreigners or sojourners there. They have the right of citizenship and are fellow citizens uh, of the saints. Such a citizenship carries with it rights and privileges, but also obligations and responsibilities. Each one is then required to live as a citizen, i.e. according to the laws and the spirit of this city, conformably to its statutes. And so if you are part of the civic body, then this is what you are, you have, you pledge your allegiance. You are, uh, you are devoted to this, this place, and you support it, and you defend it. The heavenly Jerusalem is the city of the living God, the perfect and eternal city where the elect will be gathered together and to which they are constantly drawing nearer uh, during their pilgrimage on this earth. 
In other words, the city is first of all seen as a dwelling place, the center for a group or populace. In other words, it's home, it's where you belong, that is your citizenship. And if you are beyond those boundaries, then you're an alien and a stranger in a place you don't belong. Um, The citizen, that is the polites, is the one who living in community with his compatriots is a legal subject and participates in the political life of the city. All right, and so we saw that with Boaz getting in the gates and talking to the elders and and having all the business arrangements to uh, secure the property for Elimelech and to secure the marriage rights to uh, to to Ruth, and uh, that is participating in the political life of the city. Okay, um, and you can read Plutarch if you want more on Plutarch. There, Saint Paul was more than a little proud of his home city. In Acts 21.39 he says, I am a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, no obscure city. That was his quote. To which we may compare the third century Roman inscription, uh, Tarsus, the first and greatest and most noble metropolis. So quite clearly between the graffiti in the fourth century and the Apostle Paul in Acts, people from Tarsus were, were proud of being from Tarsus. The defining characteristic of a polites is possessing politeia, the right of citizenship. If you are a citizen, you have citizenship. And with that are rights and responsibilities and duties and expectations. Rome, and, and by the way, there are footnotes galore. And some of these are quite lengthy. Josephus in his antiquity says, the Jews of Alexandria possessed Isain uh, Palatean with other inhabitants. Uh, the people of our race who live in Antioch are called Antiochenes because they were given citizenship by the city's founder, Seleucus. And um, Seleucus IV recognized the Jews' citizenship. Anyway, I'm not, I can't read all the footnotes, so we'd be here all night. Roman uh, Greek cities used to grant this honor to their benefactors, to particularly deserving persons, veterans and military leaders, politicians, men of letters, officials, physicians, whose merits they wished to honor or reward or whose services they wanted to gain. You know, most of the residents of a nation, they weren't formal citizens. They were inhabitants. They were, many of them were slaves. And even if they were free, they were simply inhabitants. They were subjects, but not citizens. Citizenship was a step above. Citizenship was a privilege, it was rights, it was responsibilities. It was really the, the, the uh, in fact they called it eugenia, like eugenics, good birth, good, um, good standing. So they would bestow citizenship. It's like the key to the city principle, that you're, you're one of us now and you have the authority, you have the rights, you have the privileges. So thus, citizenship was a title of nobility. You know, Greek was called eugenia. That placed its beneficiary in the ranks of the aristocracy because you were a citizen. You had a voice. You had a vote. You could stand in the public square and you could speak your mind. All right. But this decoration could also be bought, not only in Greek cities that by this uh, means bolstered their impoverished treasuries. Yeah, it could be a good fundraiser if in desperate times. But also at Rome. And at first, only with difficulty, the price varied between 200 and 1,000 drachmas. Uh, Anthony was generous in this respect. And yeah, if you're in a civil war and you're competing to be the, the successor, 
then you can get more people on your side if you make them citizens. And uh, if you want to boost the voting rolls, then you bring in a bunch of people who aren't citizens and you pretend that they are. And uh, Mark Anthony did that. So, sorry to say. Born on January 14th, by the way, wouldn't you know? <laughs> Claudius gave citizenship without restraint and it became a veritable commodity like merchandise with fluctuating prices. In fact, the number of civis, 1 million in 70 BC, increased by a factor of 4 by 28 BC, 5 by AD 14, and nearly 6 by AD 47. And so the prestige of the title was correspondingly diminished. They had watered it down so desperately that it, was, it became worth less and less and less the more that they were just indiscriminately throwing it around willy-nilly. All right. And so this information greatly enhances our understanding of the clash between the Chiliarch Claudius Lasius, who boasted that he had purchased citizenship at a high cost, and then the Apostle Paul who replied, well, I was a citizen from birth. In, uh, and that, you can read about that in Acts 22, verses 28 and 29. Inheriting the title greatly increased its value. Uh, apart from the honor involved, citizenship conferred many practical advantages. And this too, uh, lengthy footnote. Equality before the law, immunity, exemption from custom taxes and tribute. Jesus pointed that out. Citizens don't, don't have to pay that tax. It's the non-citizens that have to go pay that tax. He taught that doctrine to Peter when uh, he went and paid his taxes. Anyway, there's a lengthy footnote there. We'll let that go. Um, especially with respect to legal proceedings, the civis uh, this is the Roman citizen, was free to choose his court in his own country and to be judged according to its laws or to appear before Roman magistrates. And so Paul used this right of appeal to the supreme jurisdiction of the emperor, just as he referred to in the Lex Valeria. And that was a law that went back to 300 B.C. and Paul cited that in his defense. Or the Lex Portia from 198 B.C. that prohibited the scourging of Roman citizens. All right, A Roman citizen couldn't be scourged and yet they scourged him. Uh, five times he received the the lashes. Politeia also refers to the organization or system of government of the state, its constitution, its ancestral institutions, and finally the commonwealth of free men. The life of the citizen within his city, his political activity, all the forms of interaction with the life of the state. So hence pagans or outsiders cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and foreigners to the covenants. And that's the kind of language that's used from the Jewish attitude. As far as they were concerned, all these Gentiles were aliens and strangers. They weren't entitled they, as, as the Jews were to the, uh, the covenant relationship with Yahweh Elohim. Anyway, outsiders, foreigners to the covenant were not only incapable of being incorporated in the Israelite theocracy, but they were as alien as they could be to the covenants without Christ having no hope of salvation without God's providence and help. Only citizens benefited from the protection of the polis and its worship. Anyway, of course that's what makes the church so amazing that we're not neither Jew nor Gentile and that whatever our earthly citizenship is, if we're Russians or Ukrainians or Americans or Filipinos or Kenyans or whatever, we're all citizens of heaven in one body in Christ. All right. Um, then it goes into some of the political uh, parties in power and back and forth there. Um, I'm just going to let that go.
such a status, let's see, so it is a community, da, 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 da. all right, such a status brings, talking about us in the church now, brings with it a certain spirit and a certain way of life corresponding to the polis that one is a part of and the polituma that one is under. The Israelites had a particular vivid awareness of their place and their people's tradition and law, of which they called polituistai, living as a citizen, which leads to personal behavior that is conformed to the common law. And we see the same thing in uh, history, in civic law, and in, of course, the church. Live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ, conforming as such to the laws of the celestial city. To live out one's citizenship is to conduct oneself according to the demands of the politeia, which means, first of all, being willing to take on a public function, to consider oneself and all one's actions as a member of a social body, and accordingly to say nothing and do nothing that is not appropriate for a citizen of heaven. But it is also a call to honor, to preserve one's country's spirit or mindset, a noblesse oblige, and thus, and this nuance of praise is in literary terms in agreement with the usage of the inscriptions in the papyri, the rest of the citizens who choose to act more nobly. Anyway, and there's footnotes there as well. So as a concept, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe that's too much information and you didn't really care to know any of that, but the... Uh, I think what the, what the scriptures describe in terms of what God designed, all right, and God designed for volition, He designed for family, He designed for, uh, for marriage, for family, and for nations. This is for the orderly structure of humanity. And nationalism is the design. And we come together in our nations, and we come together as an ethnicity, as an ethnic group, as a people with a, with a common language, with a common culture, with a common homeland, with common uh, traditions and, and customs and practices and, and so forth. And they, they may be different, they may be strange, they may make no sense to anybody outside of us, but hey, this is us and this is what we do, so, you know, back off. And that's, that's what a, a people group is designed to be, okay? And that's the largest unit that's, that's valid, biblically speaking, all right? Because the nations are still nations in the millennium and the nations are still nations in the new heavens and the new earth. The nations still exist as nations, okay? So there's one Jewish nation and all the other Gentile nations. And that's the concept. It's totally lost today. Satan hates that. Satan's trying to bring in this one world thing where there are no nations, where it's just a planet and it's all just, you know, humanity and the brotherhood of man and we're moving on to this golden age and, and there's no borders and there's no, you know, and all of this, all of this stuff, okay? So um, just re- realize that if it's biblical, Satan hates it. And uh, it seems to be there are movements afoot today that, uh, that will do anything to despise what the Bible says, even if they have to su- subject themselves to some pretty gruesome inhuman activities. All right. So that's what we're dealing with, with conduct yourself. Be a citizen. Live as a citizen in a manner worth- worthily. Live as a citizen worthily of the gospel of Christ. Live as a heavenly citizen worthily of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's saying here. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Anything less than that is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. All right, so we have that. Under point C, there's the aspect of axios or axios. 
the idea of worthy and worthily, and we talked about that. Think of it as, as a, a scale or an equal sign. Uh, think of it like in English we have axioms or axiomatic expressions. Uh, it comes from this Greek axios or axios. Um, so something on this side of the scale, and what is worthy of that? What balances that out? What is, what is just as worthy, just as heavy? And uh, worthy of the gospel is, is what we're called to. Okay? And that's what our life is to be. So it's going to be a grace walk. It's to be, uh, if it's not grace, it's not worthy. Okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more. So, um, yeah. Uh, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Because that's going to be a symptom. It's going to be an expression of this worthiness. If they are uh, walking worthy, then that, uh, that's going to be expressed by standing firm. So let's talk about standing firm. Let's talk about uh, striving together. These are the activities that go with conduct yourself. So point seven then. We've got standing firm, contemporaneous with striving together. We've got to do a twin word study on this one because they are combined. They are contemporaneous. Standing firm is a present active indicative while striving together is a present active participle. And what we've been learning and teaching participles here in the last couple weeks is that the present participle coincides with the main verb. The present participle is a further... um, description of the main verb. It's an activity that coincides. It's contemporaneous with the main verb. So you're standing firm, and as you're standing firm, you are striving together for the faith of the gospel. If, if that's not the case, then the Apostle Paul would say, look, you're not conducting yourself in a worthy manner. If you're not standing firm, you're not conducting yourself in a worthy manner. And if you're not striving together for the faith of the gospel, that's not worthy of the gospel with which we have been called. So, um, I, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one soul, with one uh, mind. Okay, That's what he wants to hear. And as they stand firm, it's a present active indicative. I'll give you the vocabulary here in a moment under points A and B. But it's a present active indicative. Standing firm is a continuous action event. It is continuous. It is all day, every day. It is an ongoing, abiding expectation. It's not just something you do once. All right, Getting saved, you, you, that happens once, and then you live out your Christian walk. It's the same thing here with standing firm. It's continuous action in present time. Continuously stand firm as a present active indicative. And it goes with the present active participle of striving together. Okay? Does that make sense? Following that? All right. It's like, and we do the same thing too. We give a command and then we can amplify that command with, with an ing verb. Uh, an ing verb. Okay? So, um, so I might tell somebody, um, you know, watch the house for the next two weeks feeding the fish, and taking out the trash, (laughs) right? So the main verb is watch the house. Feeding the fish, taking out the trash, other ing verbs that we want to attach to it. All those ing participles 
are explanatory. They're extra, they're additional, they're explanatory, they're showing contemporaneous activity that are, that are overall defined by the main verb. Okay? And it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's not really, I mean, it's the same thing we do in English, it's the same thing we do in Greek. We, there's you know, several languages that do this. Um, it is effectively what we see in the Great Commission. Right? The Great Commission uses the same exact thing. There's an imperative, make disciples. And then there's two participles that tell you how to make disciples. Okay? You familiar with what I'm talking about? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There, go therefore, or as you go, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. That's the prime imperative. Make disciples. And then it says what? Teaching them and baptizing them. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the teaching and the baptizing, those are the present active participles that show the contemporaneous activity that help to define what it means to, to make disciples. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with. It's just basic grammar at this point. And so when we say standing firm, that you stand firm, that's the main verb. Whether I see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are presently, indicative mood, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And then with that is striving together for the faith of the gospel. So these are the two activities. Standing and striving. Alright? Standing or striving. Well we start with standing. Stand firm. Present active indicative of stako. S-T-E-K-O. Stako. It actually appears in the text as steketa. And Lewis will tell you that that eta ending is the second person plural. Present active indicative ending could also be an imperative ending, but in this case it's an indicative ending. Steketa, okay? Second person plural, all y'all, okay? That y'all are standing firm. That's what he wants to hear. That you're all standing firm, all y'all. That's right. All the Philippians are going to be standing firm. And that's what Paul wants to hear. If they are conducting themselves worthy of the gospel, they have to be standing firm. Because anything less is not worthy of the gospel. All right, so Steko, S-T-E-K-O, number 4739 is the Strong's Concordance number. It has nine New Testament usages. So there's a lot of verbs to stand. I mean, sit down, stand up, lie down, walk. There's a lot of verbs that speak of you know, bodily positions. Uh, but, but this one is more than just simply being vertical and standing. This, this references the stability. This references the, the um, commitment, the, the, uh, uh, the demand that we not budge that we're going to stand firm. And we've taught this repeatedly because this comes up, we taught this in 1 Corinthians 16, stand firm in the faith, be strong, act like men. Let all that you do be done in love. We had this in Galatians 5.1, stand firm. Um, we had this even back in Romans 14. So all of these are going to be verses that you are uh, familiar with, starting with Romans 14.4, stand firm. And it is such a prime directive that's universal for the church age there really should be more emphasis on it and more of a uh, I don't know, an impact maybe in uh, throughout church history of believers standing firm and I guess we've seen that but it's just hard to recognize these days because I see so many wishy-washy Christians that are compromising on their doctrine and they're compromising on their standards and they're just kind of going along and getting along and they want to be, you know they want to be whatever. 
friendly with uh, the Bible haters. And, and the Scripture says, stand firm. So, uh, you know, stand for the truth. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stakos, or he falls, piptos. And he will stako, for the Lord is able to make him stako. Okay? And uh, here's, a, here's a great promise. Uh, because we're commanded to stand firm, and guess who's able to make that happen? Okay? The Lord. Right? You know, it's a command that we're expected to obey, and so, hey Lord, I want to do this, but I'm not going to do it without you. Okay? Lord, you're, you're the one that's, gotta, that's able to make this happen. And so, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. I'm going to stay in fellowship. I'm going to be transformed by the Word of God. I'm going to do everything you've designed for me to do because on that basis then, the Lord is able to make me stand. If I decide to abandon doctrine and do my own thing and try it in the flesh, then I'm not going to stand at all. I'm going to fall. And that's why it says, before his own master he stands or falls. And this is uh, part of what uh, you know, Lewis will be addressing when he talks about legalism and others will be dealing with. Romans 14, why are we judging one another? We're not here to pass judgment on opinions and uh, we, we should be loving one another and supporting these faith convictions in um, the, the uh, discretionary will of God. What it is that we have freedom to, to do A or B, then let, let the others do A or B. Okay? Don't be all wrapped up about it. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. The conclusion to 1 Corinthians. We have a uh, five-fold imperative here. I think it's five-fold. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So there's a five-part imperative. And that's his conclusion to the uh, Corinthians. And so it's pretty clear that wherever Paul was, whoever he was preaching to, uh, stand firm is, is a good thing to preach. <laughs> good thing to preach to the Romans, good thing to preach to the Corinthians, good thing to preach to the Philippians, the uh, Galatians, the Thessalonians. They all need the, uh, the exhortation to stand firm. And uh, anyway, that's the, we had a lot of fun with that and especially telling the women to act like men. <laughs> if you remember in uh, the First Corinthians series. All right, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Another good passage that addresses legalism. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why would any born-again believer that's saved by grace want to go to a system of works or system of legalism for his, uh, for his spirituality, for the experiential sanctification? When uh, legalism didn't save you, legalism didn't give you positional sanctification, why do you think legalism is going to give you experiential sanctification? That makes no sense. So it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. All right. So it's an imperative, but remember... The Lord is the one that's able to make you stand. Uh, Philippians 1.27 is our passage tonight, but it's not the only place in Philippians where stako is used. It's, uh, it becomes the conclusion to Philippians as it introduces chapter 4. The first verse of uh, the closing chapter here, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, my 
beloved. And uh, this follows the, the rapture uh, exhortation that closes out chapter 3. Look, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for our Savior to return any moment, maybe today. You know, are you on the verge of losing heart? Are you just going to give up? You're going to give up on your coworker, your boss, your job, your marriage, you're gonna, yourself? I mean, just what are you, why are you giving up when the rapture could come tonight? That trumpet could sound tonight. And so, um, yeah. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, fixing your eyes on Jesus, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And, and Yodia and Seneca, come on, get along. Live in harmony in the Lord. It's too short for you to keep this stupid fight going. Stop it now. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle. Now keep that verse in mind because that's coming up next. We have stand firm and we have struggle together. Okay, Strive together. So stand firm and strive together. And you've got people there that used to do that. And if, if they could quit fighting with one another, they can start doing that again have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, and really, are you harboring mental attitude sin against a brother? His name's written in the book of life. Why, what's your attitude for? Okay, we're, uh, we're striving together in this. Anyway. Um... 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3.8. As we put these in canonical order, Galatians was written first, then 1 Thessalonians, then 2 Thessalonians. So clearly, very early in Paul's ministry, he was uh, impressed with the necessity to stake as he keeps going back to it again and again and again and again. 1 Thessalonians 3.8. And this is um, as he communicates his fear. Remember, they were only there three weeks and got driven out of town. And they weren't able to go back. And, uh, but they were able to sneak Timothy into town. He was apparently uh, so young, no one paid attention to him and wasn't uh, under the, uh, the ban, as it were. Uh, it wasn't putting Jason's uh, bond money at risk if, uh, if Timothy showed up. So he says, when we could endure it no longer, verse 1 of chapter 3, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And that's the background here. This is after Thessalonica, before um, Corinth in uh, the, the second missionary journey. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Indeed, while we were with you, we kept telling you in advance, we're going to suffer affliction. And so it's come to pass, as you know. But for this reason, when we could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so, yeah, the shepherd and Paul's concern when he is gone, you know, what wolves are coming in? What damage is getting done? Are they standing firm? Um, you know, what's, what's the condition of your faith? Has the tempter come in and just made a wreck of everything. But now that Timothy has come to us from you 
and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, or truly live, if or since you stako, you are presently standing firm in the Lord. And this is what it comes down to. You know, how hard is it to stand firm? Well, pretty simple in this case. Um, reject the tempter, <laughs> okay? Keep walking in the faith. Keep, uh, keep your eyes where they're supposed to be. And uh, it was their faith that was encouraging Paul. So they're standing firm. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? You know, there's not an offering that measures up to that. I mean, that's eternal joy. You get a good report like that, you learn about someone that's walking in the light and you weren't so sure about them, but then you find out, wow, they're thriving. Wow, God has been faithful. Wow. You mean they're, they're in the ministry? They're a pastor now? How did that happen, right? And you just learn and you go, Wow. <laughs> and and your soul is touched and the joy overflows and you're thinking this is this is incredible i couldn't have heard anything better than this tonight okay anyway and uh what thanks can we render to god you know how do you put a price on that how do you how do you make a sacrifice or an offering or a thanksgiving um in in that would be commensurate to the joy that they're experiencing here as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So until he can go back, he can't. He's got to just keep sending Timothy, or other people can go in there. Um, Aristarchus can come to him. He was from, I think it was Aristarchus. No, it was, uh, who was the one from Thessalonica? And, uh, you know, so he could come travel with Paul, get some training, and then he can go back. Things like that. Archippus. Anyway, uh, so that's First Thessalonians. Then Second Thessalonians. chapter 2 and verse 15. Remember, they'd gone through a lot of turmoil and they'd been subject to um, some uh, false teaching. Uh, A letter or a spirit or something arrived to say, um, written in Paul's name, by the way, saying, oh, I was wrong. Um, You missed the rapture. Get ready for tribulation. (laughs) Okay? Uh, You know, love Paul. And uh, no, it's a phony letter. So, but he's got to address it, which is why we have Second Thessalonians. And uh, so, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be disturbed. If you if you hear some kind of strange doctrine that doesn't agree with what you learned before, well, then relax and pray about it. Let the Spirit guide you, and uh, and so forth. So we get down to verse thirteen. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And uh, that's, the, again, the imperative to stand firm in verse 16 or 15 and hold to the traditions. And may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. Okay, Because there's going to be conflict. There's going to be a ton of conflict. If you want to stand firm, if you want to live right, just get ready. 
The adversary is going to do what he can to tear that down. All right, so stand firm. Now, of all these stand firm usages, and we've seen a variety of contexts, we've seen a variety of of, uh, different settings from Rome to Corinth to to Galatia, all these settings, Thessalonica, Philippi. Um, What makes Philippians 1.27 unique is it adds these modifiers, one spirit, one soul. And there's nowhere else in the New Testament that has language quite exactly like that. One spirit, one soul. So the verb usage is unique. Maybe it's used nine times in the New Testament, but out of those nine times, this one place uniquely takes the verb steiko and modifies it with these expressions. En heni numati, that's in one spirit. Mia psuche, one soul. In one spirit, one soul. This is how a local church is to stand firm. In one spirit, one soul, or one mind. It's translated as mind. I don't know why they did that. I prefer soul as a a translation on psuche. One spirit, one soul. Now think about the intimacy that that entails. Think about what, what that the inference you can draw from that as it relates to a local church, as it relates to you know, a whole bunch of people that are all different. And uh, think about what the Holy Spirit does, think about what the Lord does as we grow together. The, uh, the unity that takes place that can't be artificially manufactured, it can't be imposed upon somebody. There's no gimmick, there's no system, there's no methodology of, of church, churchiness that makes that happen. But this happens as Thinking is transformed individually and collectively that we're all molded into Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one soul. I think it has to happen organically. It has to happen internally. It has to happen as the Word of God transforms 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, however many. But the Word of God is transforming those people and that's where the unity takes place. One spirit, one soul. In... uh, standing firm. Not, uh, not divided, not, uh, not uh, but one. Okay? Not many, but one. We'll pick up here on Sunday because what goes together with stand firm is striving together. And uh, so we've got to deal with that. We'll talk about the athletic terminology because it's all athletic in the soon athleto and athleto uh, competition. But we're working together. We're striving together in uh, the things of the gospel. So we'll deal with that on Sunday. And then we got to talk about the opponents because there's opponents, there's suffering, there's conflict, and that shouldn't be a trouble to us. That should be an exciting thing. It should be a sign that we're doing everything right. And, and it should be, if it's a warning sign, it's a warning sign to those guys. They're the ones that ought to be uh, beware because the conflict is an indication of their con- condemnation. And... Uh, they may not care to pay attention that way, but that's what it is. All right? Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I pray for tonight that uh, what we've studied and what we've digested will continue to make sense to us. And we would appreciate the, uh, the impact that this has, that we would learn and to start to exhibit the character traits of standing firm so as to, uh, to achieve uh, those expressions, Father, that are ultimately worthy of the uh, of the gospel with which we have been called. So Father, 
Paul exhorted the Philippians in this regard. I'm exhorting the Austintonians in this regard. Father, I'm here today. Not just a word that was written 2,000 years ago. This is alive and powerful today. Austin Bible Church needs to stand firm as uh, we're children of light in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Father, thank you for being faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.